Uh, today is an awesome Sunday. It's going to be fantastic. Here's why. We are closing out our series, Faith to Flourish. Everybody say flourish. There's this verse in 92 of Psalms. I don't know why I 92 of Psalms, Psalm 92, uh, 12 and 13. And it says, it's an amazing verse, but it says, those who are planted in the house of God will flourish. And the real translation is those who are transplanted in the house of God will flourish. And my heart today is that you would understand the invitation that God comes when he uh, comes on the scene, Jesus. He wants people to flourish. And John 10, 10, we talked about this, that it's very simple, that he doesn't hide his motives. He has come to give life and life abundantly, superabundance. And so in Matthew 4, when Jesus starts his ministry, he starts it with this word, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And repentance is this big Christianese uh, word that really is a biblical word, but the world's hijacked it. It sounds kind of like, uh, how dare you eh, repent, meh, you know. But really, it's an invitation from God. Sorry, I don't know what that was. Um, <laughs> bear with me. But I want you to actually put yourselves and understand what Jesus is trying to say. Imagine you are on a beach. And you know about this beach. Uh, this beach has more killer uh, sharks, great whites, uh, tiger sharks, than any other beach in the world. Nobody swims in this beach, so they go in the water. It's almost guaranteed death. It is guaranteed death. And so somebody you love shows up, and they're walking on the beach, and they're going straight to go swimming because it looks good, and they're just going to go swim. What do you do? Do you sit there and say, all right, all right, see how this, get your, get your popcorn ready, okay, okay. No. You would do this. Let's make it more real. It's a family member. Somebody you love, it's a son, it's a daughter, it's a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister. You would scream, stop! Turn around! That is death! It's guaranteed death! Don't go in there! I know! I found out! That is death! Life is this way! You would come on the scene, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus saw God's people walking towards death, and he said, repent, bust a 180, and start living a different way. Now let's make it a flourish illustration. Imagine meeting somebody, they're your great friend, you love them to death, you want them to succeed in life, and they try to start a vineyard in Antarctica, okay? They're planting the vineyard in Antarctica, and they're like, it's just not working, life is so tough, I keep on putting the feet in the ice, and there's no vineyard, it's terrible! I was going to call the wine, cool wine, get it cool, freezing, you know, something like that. And you come to your friend and say, no, no, transplant, you got to go, you got to get planted somewhere else, this, this has no life. Come to this place called Napa. Come on now. Yonville, Calistoga, St. Helena. Come on down. Frog's Leap, Duck Horn. Who's some people's favorite wineries? Go ahead, let me hear them real quick. Favorite wineries. That's actually not going to work. I can't hear anything. Never mind. Um, you guys drink wine to this church? Yes, we do. Okay. Drink wine, don't get drunk. Okay, anyways. Okay, boom. Uh, biblical. So anyways, um, um, I can save this, I promise. This is... Jesus' invitation. You are trying to plant yourself in Antarctica, basically, the world. And you're just not going to flourish there. It's not where life is found. He says, blessed are those who transplant their life and take the seed of their life and plant it in the house of God, in the things of God, in the joy of God, and watch your life flourish. Watch what I can do with your life. Give me your whole life, Jesus says. Repent, come, plant your life with me, and watch what I do with it. And so at the end of this series, I'm going to encourage you that one of the greatest things that you need to do is that you need to understand love so you can stay planted. Love to be planted, love to plant others, love to invite people to the plant. It's a journey. It's, it's, it's not an overnight fix. I'm not trying to give you some quick thing where you do this and you're done. I always say this. Uh, I've been saying this this whole series. People want the pecs without the push-ups. They want the peace without the prayer. They got million-dollar dreams but a $100 work ethic. 
It also says in Psalm 92, if I could just be honest, it says in 92.7 that those who live for themselves, they sprout up like grass. <laughs> but then they're <laughs> done like grass. But in Psalm 92, 12, and 13, and 14, it says that the godly, the ones who plant in the house of God, they rise up like palm trees. They grow like cedars of Lebanon. AKA, don't compare yourselves with grass because God's not trying to grow grass. He's trying to grow a cedar. He's trying to grow something really special. Found out something else about uh, um, the botanical things of plants is that apple trees sometimes take three years to start showing fruit. Three years. And some of you may be looking at the world and you ever ask this question, why is it that person, they're not living for God, they're doing everything wrong, but they got everything I want right now. I see something coming out of their life right away. And God is saying to you in this series and in this message today, hey, I'm not trying to have a quick little, I'm growing something way more special than that. Just give me some time. Let me grow what I need to grow in your life. Let's pray. So Lord, as we dive into the message in faith to flourish, may we have faith to love, faith to believe in who you are, faith to believe that we are called to be something greater than we see right now. Oh, Father, we need you. May my words fall to the floor and may your words soar. Oh, Jesus, we need you. We need you. And everybody sit. All right, turn your Bibles to uh, 1 John 4, 7, and 8 is what we're going to read. I believe we're going to have it on the screen. Going to try to put almost every verse on the screen today. Let's see how that goes. Sound good? I like it. Here we go. 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us continue to love. Everybody say love. One another. So does it say who? One another. Everybody, basically. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is, finish it with me. Come on, participate. For God is. Come on, I'm going to need you to interact with me today. Here we go. Title of my message is faith to love. For you to flourish, you need a love not of this world. Let me go on to uh, show you another verse, how important it is. A lot of Christians I talk to, they get really confused about what their responsibility is as a believer in Christ and a follower of Christ. Some people feel like they're called to perfection. So Jesus comes on the scene and he wants to set it straight. Are you called to perfection? No. Are you called to religion? No. Are you called to a bunch of rules? No. So then what does he call you to? Matthew 22, 36 through 40 says this. The question that I think everybody wants to ask, Lord, Lord, what's the most important thing to you? That if I'm going to live my life, what's the most important thing to you, Lord? Goes on to say, Jesus replies to all of us, you must love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire, everybody say entire. Come on, it's a big deal. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Stop. There's a fascinating thing that is shown here is I think that you can see people, if you feel like you're called to perfection, you start to live the achievement culture, and basically the way you look at your walk with Christianity is how many things you can achieve in Christianity. You see Christianity as the JV team and the varsity team. You come and you're like, I'm on the JV right now, but if I do these five things, I might be on varsity eventually. Everybody's going to think I'm amazing. That is not what you're called to. You are not called to perfection. There is no JV. There is no varsity. Religion says, uh, work your way to God. God says, I sent Jesus so you could be with God. You hear what I'm saying? And so there is no uh, uh, call to perfection. It's a call to commitment and a commitment to love. Another one is you may feel like you're called to religion. Well, I'm called to religion. No, you're not called to religion. A religion would have you fall in love with traditions and a certain preference of how I'm doing things. Can we shut that door? I'm so sorry. Oh, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> Awkward. It's all good. Um, that's, this is on me. This is on me. That's my bad. That's my beat. I'm a big dumb animal. Here we go. But I did learn, I learned this this week. Everybody want to say that? All right, I'm going to, I'm going to, J, 
Josh Harper is an amazing dancer. He taught me that, okay? Anyways, um, I can't do this one yet, whatever that one is, okay? But I don't want to learn that one is what I said. Anyways, if you feel like you're called to religion, you start doing all these traditions, all these things. And just didn't call you religion. If you feel like you're called the rules, and that's really what the Pharisees felt like, they were called the rules. 600 rules in the Old Testament, uh, do's and do nots, and so they kept adding rules, enforcing rules, getting mad at people who didn't follow the rules, were known by the rules, and the best ones followed all the rules and knew all the rules. And Jesus comes on the scene, man. I'm calling everybody to love. And this love will have everything fall into place. Because if you're called to love, here's what you add to your life. Things like forgiveness, mercy, grace, patience, generosity. Love has you add these, all these different tool belt things in your, in your heart, and that's the things that change people's lives. You want to become perfect? Fall in love with God and love people and watch him perfect you through that process of loving people. You know what the hardest thing for us to do is to love people? And I'm not talking about just loving like your, your spouse, which also can be hard at times. I'm not about loving your friends, which also can be hard at times. Loving your church, which can also be hard at times. I'm talking about loving the unlovable. And I think for the church to flourish, and this is where we're in the faith to flourish, I think for you to flourish and for me to flourish, that the church has to be the most loving place on the planet. We say this in our mission track every single time. Our goal is to be the most loving church on the planet. So what does it look like to be the most loving church on the planet? I'm going to use an illustration I think all of us can understand. It's called the home court advantage. The church should have the greatest home court advantage of all places. Now, what does it look like? So if you're not a sports fan, let me break it down real quick. I'll use San Francisco athletes and maybe some L.A. athletes. So um, I used to think sport fans were the worst at this. Um, Barry Bonds, anybody a Giants fan in the house? You talk to a lot of Barry Bonds fans and Giant fans, they're like, he did not do steroids. He just worked out a lot, okay? You don't know Barry. Barry's our guy, okay? Um, and so you'd watch, I remember watching uh, the, the home run race, and Barry Bonds, who literally became like two human beings, like, and the bat looked like a toothpick in his hand, okay? Um, he was hitting home runs, and the whole Giant Stadium, everybody would just, Barry, we love you! Barry would go to Safeco Field, Seattle. That's where I was born. And he'd come in and we'd be yelling, you're a cheater! You love rights! We hate you! I mean, totally, not the home court. It's a way vantage, okay? The, the opposite. But he'd walk in San Francisco, he'd get in that park, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, Barry, you're our boy! You're the son of the Giants! Let's talk about something recent right now, Draymond Green. Draymond Green. You talk to Warrior fans? I'm a Warrior fan. I love the Warriors. I talk to Warrior fans, they're like, Draymond, he's a warrior. He plays hard. Man, he's tough. He's the heart and soul of our team. We love you, Draymond! I remember going to the game, and I remember like, yeah, come on, Draymond! You know what? I mean, we've seen some plays where Draymond has go to uh, play defense, and he plays defense like this sometimes. He literally kicked a guy in his stomach place, okay? Um, and the guy was like, ah! And everybody's like, warrior! He's a warrior! You take that same Draymond. Get him out of that home court advantage, and you bring him to Oklahoma City. They're like, you're a cheat. You're nasty. You're a dirty player, Draymond. I mean, they just go at him. Let's keep going. I lived in L.A., and the Laker fans think Michael, uh, Michael Jordan is a good, but they think Kobe's the greatest player ever to live. No, it's not true. Not true. L.A., L.A. Oh, okay. Okay, good. It's like, oh, we're about to debate Kobe and Michael right now. Okay. So you got these fans, and I remember moving down to L.A., and they're like, oh, hey, we get Michael, it's good, but Kobe's all the time. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you get outside of L.A., Kobe's not even top 10 in the NBA. You guys are silly. Like, no, Kobe, he's the greatest. He even gets Academy Awards for his short films. Yeah. They love Kobe. Take that same Kobe. You go on the road, and, I mean, you got people screaming at him, screaming, you're selfish. Stop. 
I'll never forget processing the home court advantage in church. And I thought sport fans were the worst. But then I met parents. Oh, I became a youth pastor. I became a youth pastor, and I'd have youth kids. And I remember working with a parent, and the parent would be like, oh, my son, isn't he just the best? And he's actually the worst, by the way. And, and they'd be like, oh, my gosh, I just, he's the best. I mean, you should have seen him yesterday. We were driving the road, and there was a homeless person, and he gave the homeless person the rest of his malt shake to the homeless person. He's the best. And I remember like, oh, do we, are we talking, you must have another kid, because the kid you're talking about, he is the worst kid in youth ministry. He is like trying to get with girls. He bullies people. He's the worst. And I remember finally I just, I broke one day. I broke. I worked with this person. Her kids were in my youth ministry in L.A. And she was bragging about how great her son was. And finally I said, can I, can I be real with you? I, I was weak. I shouldn't have done this, okay? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not endorsing this moment. And I said it with most finesse I could. And I just said, you know, I, I don't see who you're talking about. Uh, I, I'm just going to be honest. Your son has been so hard for me in youth ministry. And she looks at me. And she goes, oh, Tyler, 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 Tyler. I know, he's terrible. He's terrible. And it was this moment, but she looked at me, and you could see the love of a mom, the love of a parent. And she goes, I believe in him. And whenever he does something great, I just I try to call it out at him because I can see greatness in him. I can see it, and I love my son. I'll never give up on my son. She's got this love for her son that she sees things. She's more committed than I am because she's called to love her son even worse than sport fans. And I thought that parents were the worst. And then I started reading my Bible, and I fell in love with the Lord, and I found out, actually, Jesus is the worst of the worst at this. It's just what he does. It's what he does. Picture this story. He talks that the Pharisees are, it's driving them nuts. He is celebrating, not sin, but he is loving people where they're at, and then when they say yes to him, before they do anything good for their standards, because they're called the rules and perfection, these people, all they do is say yes to Jesus, and everybody's celebrating these people. He goes on to share a story about the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes home, and guess what he gets? He gets the party of all parties. He gets the ring on his finger, signifying that he's going to be an heir. He gets the robe of all robes. He gets the best calf of all calves. And it's the greatest home court advantage ever. He's like, everybody get together. We're celebrating my son. He's the best. And the older, self-righteous brother is out there not celebrating because he goes, I don't get it. I don't understand this. And he's, he's comparing the self-righteous brother to the Pharisees. And in the church today, can you imagine if the, the prodigal son story was in 2018? with social media, where the son comes home and they're Insta-storying the party, they're, they're, they're putting it on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you have, and people around the community say, what in the world is going on? I knew that guy. He came out with a bunch of money. He slept with a ton of girls. He gambled, he cheated, and he goes back to that place, and they're all celebrating that he came home, a sinner, but now saved. He was lost, but he's now found. And what the church has to become is that the world may call you a liar, but the church is going to call you saved and loved. The world may call you broken. We're going to say you're going to get restored. They may say that you're isolated and you're disgusting. We're going to say that you're going to be renewed and brand new. What the, what the away team says, the home court team is going to say something different. For the church to be powerful, it must have the greatest home court advantage on the planet. All of us come in with junk. All of us come in with just the worst stuff. Oh, man, I've been a pastor for 15 years, and I have seen some stuff. 
And I used to think that I was the only one that grew up poor. I was like, I'm the only one that had food stamps. It was so hard. It was so hard. You don't know my story. My dad used to cuss me out. Oh, it's the worst. And so I'd come into church and be like, oh, people, look at, all, look at those people worshiping. They're the perfect life, and I'm the one with the hard life. What you find out when you hang out for a handful of years, you find out that everybody's been betrayed, broken, hurt by people that they worshiped with, hurt by people they said vows with, hurt by people that were supposed to be their parents that protected them, but they abused them. And so they come through these walls, and they've tasted everything that the world had to offer that is disgusting. And they're supposed to come through here and taste something totally different, and it's the love of the Father. And if they come in here and you tag them the same thing the way the world does, we are done, we're dipped. You are not the judge, jury, executioner of somebody's walk. You are called to love them where they're at and love them on the journey. And as they go on the journey, you're supposed to celebrate them. Can you imagine uh, the Warriors games if KD missed a free throw and everybody's like, boo, you suck. You know what happens when KD missed a free throw? Everybody's like, I didn't see it. Did you see it? I didn't see it. No, I don't know. It's KD. KD doesn't miss free throws. Uh-uh. And then he makes the next one. Woo, we love KD. Automatic. When somebody fails in the church, this has got to be a soft place for them to land. This is not where we shoot the wounded. Tyler, are you preaching a licentious gospel that people can just sin? Why stop sinning if Jesus keeps forgiving? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is when people fall, that we don't shoot them, that we help them get back up and say, that's not where you're supposed to live. You're supposed to live here. We're supposed to love them so much that we get dirty with them in the sense that we get in the mud with them and we pull them out of the mud. And we say, man, I believe in you. This one thing that you did, this rhythm you have in your life, this does not define you. We're going to look at two stories that Jesus did because Jesus came to preach the gospel with word and deed. We're going to look at the story of the leper. We're going to look at the story of the Samaritan woman. And we're going to see Jesus love people that the world did not know how to handle. And I believe that the church has to be the place that loves people better than anybody. So let's look at the isolated one. Turn your Bibles if you have them. If not, we got it on the screen. Mark 1, and we're going to start in verse 40. Mark 1, verse 40. Simply wrote that Jesus' love came to destroy isolation. Came to destroy isolation. We'll read the first verse and we'll stop there real quick. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. Stop. Let's just unpack leprosy real quick because it's not a common thing in our day. So a lot of people maybe don't understand even what leprosy is. If you want to go even study a little bit, Leviticus 13 is a good verse that unpacks what leprosy um, created in your life. So here's what leprosy was. It was a sickness um, of the um, outer skin extremities. Um, as it got worse and worse, it would actually cause numbness in your uh, limbs and hands so you wouldn't feel anymore. There was rules with uh, leprosy. Basically, one of them was that you had to stay 50 paces away from everybody. So you had to be isolated. So imagine the emotional torment and pain of being isolated from everybody. No human touch, no hugs, no nothing. It was, leprosy was taken so seriously back then that if a leper was under a tree and there was shade on the tree and you walked under the same shade of that tree, you would actually be now unclean and you have to go through the ceremony cleaning process because you were just too close to a disgusting leper. And so this leper hears about this Jesus that is loving people where they're at. He has hope for the first time for his isolated life. And so can you imagine just the first part of this leper's journey? He is walking 50 paces away, 49, 48, 47, 46. And I want to stop you there real quick. I don't want to discount anybody who walked through those doors, how hard it was to get here. That every pace that you walked here, you maybe thought of a wound, or every pace you walked here, maybe you were wounded by a church, 
And we have no idea what it takes for people to get through this room. And so if they get into this room, the only thing they better get is love from the Father. I don't want you enforcing some rule on them if they don't know the love of Jesus yet. Don't be wrong. Jesus gives us truth. Their truth is, oh, it's, it's so good for our soul. Repentance is so good for us. The scripture challenges us to remove things that we shouldn't have in our life. It's good for us. But if it's not the source of love and it's not in love, we're done. Nobody needs more. Do you, do you think the person in the church today that is struggling with some kind of sin needs your self-righteous pointing finger? Do you think that's what they need to be restored? No. Now, people come to church, and I believe a lot of people today still suffer from the symptoms of leprosy. You may say, what, what do you mean they suffer from the sins of leprosy? Leprosy had isolation. People come into the church, but they're just as isolated as a leper would be back then. They come and they leave. No human interaction, no depth of relationship. They feel alone. They feel isolated, emotionally tormented because there's nobody there to carry the journey with them. Another thing is it showed that their life was basically, your, your life was physically falling apart in front of people's eyes. Physically falling apart. And when people live for the world, they don't flourish. Their life literally, emotionally and mentally, relationally, it just starts to fall apart. Another thing that, again, the, the numbness, you'd literally become numb. You couldn't feel anymore. And I think one thing that sin does to us and the world does to us, even when you say love, is you're numb to love because I've been through that thing called love. I was in love in junior high and then I got betrayed and I, I said I love you and I got, said I love you back, but I experienced a love of this world and it broke me. Now I'm numb to this love because I don't want anybody to touch the rest of what I have left in my heart to give to somebody. So Jesus comes to fix this sickness. And leprosy is an outer sickness, but Jesus came to fix the leprosy in our own heart. And so he goes on, comes up to Jesus, and he says this to him, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. I think a lot of you, and myself including, I've got to bring things to the Lord. I've heard one of my mentors say that you're only as sick as your secrets. You've got to bring the worst parts of your heart to the Lord, things that you don't want anybody else to see and say, God, if you're willing to, to clean this part of me, I'll give it to you. I surrender to you. Too many Christians come to a church and when they say yes to Jesus, they actually say yes with conditions. Well, if I'm going to say yes, what does that mean for my lifestyle? So this is what I like to do in my life. What, I'm going to keep these, but I will say yes to Jesus. That's not, what, that's not what this man does. If you want to be restored and have your life overflow and flourish, you've got to come, throw your feet, your, your, yourself at the feet of Jesus, and just say, if you're willing, restore all of this. Change my life completely if you have to. If, Jesus, if you want to allow Jesus to change your life, you're dipped. If you are worshiping and reading the word and only agreeing with what you like in the Bible, you're creating a God that you like instead of actually the real Jesus. Allow him to change your life because when Jesus changes your life, it's always for the better. Allow him to challenge you to become the most forgiving person on the planet. Allow him to challenge you to be the most generous person on the planet, the most committed person to the, in the planet. Allow him to challenge you to be the most patient person on the planet. So he goes on, and this is Jesus' response. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared, and the man was healed. Stop. I want you to catch this real quick. It says, moved with compassion. Translations say that Jesus was indignant. Some say he was frustrated. The reason why is because the Greek word, it says it comes from the guts of his being. That Jesus sees this leper, so broken, and you can... Again, you, you, you understand the heart of the Lord. Imagine seeing your own son. Imagine seeing a region. Imagine seeing a person being destroyed by sin, destroyed by the philosophies of life, and just absolutely being destroyed, and you see it. It would get in your guts. 
You would feel it. You would be angry. You would feel compassion. You would be frustrated with it. So Jesus is moved by this. He says he feels it in his guts. And he touches the man in leprosy. And he heals him. Now let's break this down real quick. Jesus comes to Lazarus, who was dead in a grave, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus says to another person, you are healed. He doesn't have to touch the leper. This is, like again, this is a no-no of all no-nos. If the clean touch the unclean, they become unclean. The last thing you do in this society is actually touch a leper. Why does Jesus reach out and touch a leper when he doesn't have to? He wanted to touch him because this man hadn't uh, experienced interaction or experienced love in the longest time. I want, catch this real quick. My, uh, one of my old churches I worked at, this year pastor there, big church, thousands upon thousands. Homeless guy gets saved, comes up to him, and he gives the pastor a hug. And the first reaction that the pastor wanted to do was just push the guy off of him. Just, oh gosh, this guy smells terrible. And he hears from the Lord just a gentle impression, hug that man a little longer. Don't let go of that guy a little longer. Just like the leper, grab him and hold him. And so the pastor just gave him a big old hug and just held the man while he literally wept and then sent him on his way. It was the first time that man probably had a hug from anybody, a loving hug from anybody. And the touch of Jesus on the leper's life you got to understand what's happening here and what you need to do in your own life. Is that when a leper comes your way, somebody who is isolated, are you willing to be a little uncomfortable here in the world so somebody can actually taste the comforts of heaven? Are you willing to give somebody grace when they, all they deserve is actually punishment? Are you willing to give somebody time when the last thing you want to do is give them time? Are you willing to go to lunch with somebody that you don't want to go lunch with because of the isolated one? If isolated ones can't find a relationship in the church, where are they going to find it? If isolation, isolated ones aren't going to have interaction with people at church, where are they going to find it? We're not going to create a church. We're not going to create a crowd where you come and you sit by people that you only want to talk to. You are going to become a servant of the kingdom and say, man, lepers, isolated people, they're going to come in here and we're going to love them where they're at. And here's what's so great about it. This leper becomes clean. Jesus' grace, his love rubs off on the man. It's the first time that unclean became clean by touching clean. And when people come in here, and all they know is hate, and they experience love, they start to have our love rub off on them. You hear what I'm saying? Let's look at the Samaritan woman. We're going to start in John 4, verse 3. John 4, verse 3. So Jesus' love came to destroy isolation. Our love is going to destroy isolation. Next thing in John 4, uh, I love it. We're going to start in uh, verse 3, and we're going to read the first two, and then we're going to kind of unpack real quick. So Jesus says, so he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go. Again, why does the all-powerful God have to go through Samaria? He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now let me unpack this real quick. The eastern route was the longer route to get to uh, Galilee. It was the, lo the longer route, and it was the most common route because the Samaritan people were the rejected people. They were dogs to the Jews. They were rejected by society. And so the most popular route that Jews would take is they would go on the eastern route. But Jesus said, I'm not taking the popular route. I'm going to go straight to the rejected people. And not only am I going to go to the rejected people, I'm going to go to the one that's rejected by the rejected people that has to go to the well in the middle of the day instead of the morning because she's sleeping around. And even the Samaritans have rejected the rejected one. Now picture this moment. Jesus' love compels him to go to the rejected. And so he says, I have to go to this place. Let's keep going. 
I'm going to read the very, uh, um, uh, I'll read to eight and then I'll kind of unpack it just to save time. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sakar, near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone. Stop. So many things wrong with this story. So many things that rules would say not to do. So many things that religion would say not to do. So many things that people with a lot of wisdom would say, don't do this. But Jesus' love says, do this. I want you to catch this real quick. This woman comes to the well and Jesus encounters her. And basically what happens is he starts to talk to this woman who suffers from rejection. And she has wounds of rejection. And it's, it's fascinating to me. And I, I just wrote down a couple of thoughts uh, about rejection. Uh, I wrote down... Um, there are not enough people in the world to heal the wound of rejection in your life. People have the wound of rejection, it's just so obvious. I'll just be honest. They come off extremely needy. They come off with people that they just need people. They need their time. They want to have coffee with them. You get two coffees, well, they want three coffees. They want four coffees. You know, I had four coffees, but then the fifth one you said no. How dare you say no to the fifth coffee? I just, it's never enough. There, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never forget, I was greeting people on a Sunday one time, and I was saying hello to people. And I missed a hello to somebody. I didn't say hello to the person. And literally from the side, they're like, how about you say hello to me? And I was like, what the, what the, what? I was like, hello. And they're like, I, the last three weeks I've walked by and you haven't, you said hello to everybody except me. And I was like, oh. And again, just why is that, what, what is that in that person's heart that because I missed them for three weeks while a ton of people are spilling in, they were mad that the pastor didn't say hello to them. They have a wound of rejection. So the Samaritan woman, under her fifth husband, not enough men in the world to fill and to heal the wound of rejection. But there is somebody that can heal the wound of rejection. There is somebody that can restore the wound of rejection. His name is Jesus. So he comes and he talks to her and says, hey, you drink this well, you'll be thirsty again. I'm going to give you something that will satisfy your life, something that will restore your life. And she's like, hold on, what, what are you talking about? She starts unpacking religious things, starts unpacking race. It's fascinating when people even suffer with rejection, they give you opportunities to reject them. She literally says, well, I'm, you're not supposed to talk to me. Race-wise, we're not supposed to talk race-wise. She's giving them excuses. Just reject me because of my race. Just reject me because of my class. Just reject me because of this. Okay, you know, I don't want to go too deep. I'm rejected. Let's talk about religion because we actually talk about relationship. You're going to get to the heart of what's wrong with me. I'd rather talk here instead of here. Have you ever noticed people who speak really religious, but man, they're breaking inside? Then all the, you know, Jesus is going straight for the jugular here. And so he comes to this woman, and he tells her everything she's done. And then he gives her an answer to restore. He goes, I'm the one that came for the rejected ones. If you say yes to me, your whole life will be changed. The rejection you feel in your heart, and your soul, and your mind, I'll restore it. And people, the, re the relationship you have with people will be completely different. And so our life has changed. Now, I want you to catch this real quick. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Deed and word is what Jesus did to show people that he loved him. Deed and word. Rachel and I uh, dated for five months. We broke up for eight months, almost nine. Uh, then I came back to her house, told the yo girl, I want to marry you. And she was like, oh my gosh, really? And I was like, yeah, that's not what happened, actually. Uh, uh, I was like, congratulations. <laughs> not at all. She's like, let me think about it. So we started dating again, and we've been dating for about a month and a half, two months. And my intention is I want to marry Rachel, and 
it was my birthday, and Rachel worked at Sony Pictures at the time, and so she was overseeing a couple of the TV shows, I think Community and another TV show, and so she's down there at Comic-Con, and so it's my birthday, and I'm bummed. My, my girlfriend that I want to marry, she's at San Diego. It's all good, uh, but it's, I, was, I was devastated, uh, and I didn't tell her, though, because, I mean, again, you never want to make somebody feel bad that they got to go do something, so I, was, I, I played it real cool. I, oh, it's all good. We'll celebrate next week, and I love you, girl. You know, I didn't say I love you yet, because we're only dating for a month and a half. I'm not that weird. Um, <laughs> One weekend, I think I'm in love with you. Um, so anyways, it's a month and a half in, and I walk into a, uh, my, my friend's house, and they threw me a little surprise party. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet, so nice, a bunch of people that I, I, I uh, um, pastored. And I look around, and Rachel's in the corner. She drove up three hours to hang out for two hours from San Diego for my birthday. And I, and I remember seeing her. We've only been dating for a month and a half now. And I was like, Rachel? And I had to fight back the tears, and I gave her a hug. And she didn't say nothing, but when I hugged her, I was like, dang, this girl loves me. <laughs> she, is, she is all about me, you know what I'm saying? I had this, like, confidence now. I was like, oh, my gosh, obsessed much, you know? Um, she drove three hours to give me a birthday hug and hang out with me for a couple hours and then drive back at 11 o'clock at night for another three hours to go work in the morning all day long because she loved a boy named Tyler. A week later, she comes back. We've been only dating for a month and three weeks now, and I said, I love you, girl. Yeah, I am that guy, actually. A month and three weeks, I said it. You want to know why I said it? Because I knew she loved me, too. Who drives up and does that? She looks at me, and she didn't say, I love you back. I was like, dang, girl. <laughs> Took me two tries, and then she said it back. I want you to catch this real quick. The Samaritan woman. You got to you got to understand what's happening here in culture and in this moment. She goes in the middle of a hot day to get water by herself to avoid people because if she avoids people, then nobody can reject her. And then Jesus explodes her plan of rejection because he loves her that much. And he shows up because he has to go. He's got to drive three hours from San Diego. He's got to go through the way that nobody goes through. And he encounters her and she's got to be thinking to herself, Come see the man that had to come meet with me. Come see the man that knew everything that I had done and still loved me. Come see the man who didn't reject me but loved me where I was at. Did he shame her for her five husbands sleeping around? No. He loved her right where she was at and just said, man, there's better for you. Oh, I want, I want to be your God. Let me save your life. And I believe that we have to do the same thing for people. The ones that are avoiding you, man, pursue them. But don't be stalkers weird about it. Just pursue them. When people walk in wounded and broken, every single time that you encounter them and love them and they make it superficial, just stay persistent with them. And eventually, I believe, because the love of God, it will break the wall and the wound of rejection and they'll encounter the love of God again and say, man, I can be loved in the house of God. That servants said yes to love. They said yes to the greatest home court advantage. They said yes to flourishing with God. On your chair, you're going to see a little communion cup. You want to grab that? I want you to grab it real quick. I love receiving communion with you every month. And Jesus said that we we're supposed to do this as a church corporately. It's a, it's a commandment from God that we would receive communion and remember what he did and remember what he's going to do. Paul unpacks with three things that you should Remember his sacrifice, remember his coming, and then also repent of your uh, things in your life. And I want you to catch this real quick. It's an, oh, it's, it's, it's an amazing moment. 
So Jesus comes to the leper, the isolated one, and it's the first time that clean touches unclean and makes unclean clean. It's an amazing moment. Every other time in history, if the leper would have touched somebody, unclean makes unclean. But now the grace is bigger than the mess, that God's love is bigger than the hate, that God's um, mercy is bigger than um, a judgmental person. God's thing is just bigger than whatever the world has to offer. Sin is not the big bad guy anymore. God's grace is the big bad guy on the scene. And I always wonder, like, Lord, how did that happen? How did you do that? Like, how did this happen? Jesus goes and becomes the leper and becomes the rejected one. Goes on the cross and becomes the isolated one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've been isolated. He's been isolated so you could be accepted. He gets rejected by the people he loved most, betrayed by the people he worshiped with, forsaken by the people he said, stay close to me, but I know you're going to leave me. He was rejected so you can now be accepted. When you receive communion, it's not just some light thing where you drink some juice and you eat some bread. It is this moment where you go, Jesus, you became the leper so I could become clean. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin. He who was clean became the spotted, dirty leper so you could become the clean, spotless lamb. It's an amazing moment what communion represents. But then there's this challenge in the Bible that's amazing. It says in Mark that, we follow him to become like him. It says that Paul says that our aim is to actually we're going to become like Christ. So then it comes full circle. Once you become blameless and loved and you become the one that now has been received and accepted, guess what you get to go do? You get to go get rejected again. Because you're going to get rejected so others can be accepted. You're going to be the one that maybe some people isolate at work because, oh, that's just the Christian. You'll be isolated again. So then one day when they say, man, I need to talk to that Christian, that they'll be accepted. We got to carry our cross as a church. We got to love the unlovable. We got to be willing to say to people, man, I love you where you're at. Man, to serve people graciously. People need to touch. You know, you know what the world needs today? They need a touch of forgiveness. They need a touch of grace. They need a touch of mercy. They need a touch of truth. They need a touch of this un conditional love. They need generosity. They need to say, where did this come from? Why are you doing this to me? Because he did this for me. So as you receive communion, I'm going to challenge you to repent of some things, maybe some selfishness. Maybe you, you've had it out for somebody. Maybe you've had a bar of self-righteousness and you feel like you've been called to self-righteousness to make sure everybody knows about what that person did. And that's not even the calling on your life. You're called to love people. So repent today and say, Lord, help me love. Help me love the way you loved Help me be generous the way you were generous. And then we receive the bread and cup. Worship Jesus a little different today. And then leave here today and let's love a world that is desperate to be loved by Jesus. Does that sound good?